You're listening to Descent Magazine's Belaboured Podcast, hosted by Sarah Jaffe and Michelle Chen. Each Friday, we bring you the latest news and analysis from the world of labour. First, the news. Hi, Michelle. Hey, Sarah. Welcome to episode 40 of Descent Magazine's Belaboured Podcast. We're 40! Oh my god! Uh, <laughs> I woke up this morning to uh, my friends in, in London tweeting about the uh, the tube strike. Luckily, since I'm only Twitter friends with nice pro-union people, they were mostly explaining to other people why the inconvenience caused by a strike is sort of, you know, the point. So workers in London from two unions, the National Union of Rail, Maritime, and Transport Workers and the Transport Salaried Staffs Association are on a two-day strike over proposed job cuts that include closing all ticket offices at stations on the London Underground. That would be the subway for those of you who are not regular travelers overseas in on public transportation. Um And they'll be cutting station supervisors, who are the people who, among other things, respond in emergencies, help people with disabilities, purchase their tickets, and replacing them with ticket machines. Um, This also includes proposals to cut wages for the workers who remain. Shocking, I know. According to the BBC, meanwhile, the conservative government is considering declaring the tube an essential service, requiring a limit on the effect that strikes like this one would have, so that it would be, in some ways, illegal for workers to take action like this. Kind of like in New York. Kind of like in New York. Um, So once again, we see this paradox, right, where they say tube workers are too essential to strike, but they're not essential enough to keep their jobs and be paid decently for them. Um, This is, of course, exactly why strikes work. They demonstrate how essential and necessary these workers are to the smooth running of this case, the entire city of London. Now from the London Tube to uh, private transportation, we go to auto workers in Tennessee. So it turns out that United Auto Workers, the embattled uh, union of the American auto industry, is actually... Uh, seeking to organize new fresh blood in Chattanooga, Tennessee, of all places, in the heart of uh, sort of the anti-union territory of the United States. And this time, it's actually not Big Auto, um, whose uh, workers are being organized, but it's a German firm, Volkswagen. So it turns out that Volkswagen AG leaders want the Chattanooga plant to be part of its worldwide system of works councils, which is actually a German-style system of workplace organization that gives work an actual voice in the operation of the plant and what they produce and how they produce, as well as to some degree, um, you know, uh, corporate level decision making, trade policy, other things like that, Um, sort of a a pillar of German social democracy. But of course, that doesn't play out quite as well in Chattanooga. So it turns out that uh, in this system of over 100 plants operating under Volkswagen around the world. Um, The Chattanooga plant is the only one that operates outside of this works council system. So that makes the U.S. a pretty big outlier in union rights, as it always is. Um, And Tennessee is, of course, a notoriously anti-union state. So what do you do in this case? Well, they got a majority of pro-union cards uh, signed by the workers, and uh, that would ordinarily, um, uh, you know, qualify them to go through the formal unionization process if the company did not insist under pressure from anti-labor politicians that they go through the traditional secret ballot election. So now they're in that process, and we'll keep on updating you on that. But um, this just goes to show you that globalization has been uh, blamed for sort of the death of the U.S. auto industry. Now you have this rare international plant that is actually trying to implement a rather pro-worker uh, system in a U.S. plant, and 
and the U.S. is the one pushing back against that. Um, now imagine what happens when the U.S. exports its manufacturing system to the rest of the world and lower income countries. So um, all this to say is uh, stay tuned. Uh, there'll be a lot more coming out of Chattanooga for once. So I don't know if all of our listeners are football fans and watch the Super Bowl this weekend, but football is now over for the year. You maybe heard some discussion this past week of the salaries paid to some of the players on the winning team that were pretty low for pro athletes who just won their sport's highest honor. You probably didn't hear any discussion of some of the lowest paid workers on the field, the cheerleaders. Now, of course, the Oakland Raiders cheerleaders, who were not, of course, in the Super Bowl, have come together and filed a lawsuit in Alameda County Superior Court alleging wage theft and other unfair labor practices. They say they're only paid $1,250 for the entire season, which comes out to less than $5 an hour for the time they spend at rehearsal performances and appearing at promotional events for which they do not get paid. One Raiderette told reporters, the club controls our hairstyle and makeup and we have to foot the bill. This isn't news, of course. This kind of beauty labor is expected for lots of jobs that women perform and it's rarely understood as labor. If you remember our conversation in episode 31 about the Supreme Court's debate over clothes and whether getting dressed for work was part of one's job. In the case of cheerleaders, whose job is largely contingent on their looks... The time it takes to look the part is an invaluable part of the job. Lynn Paramore wrote an excellent piece at Alternet looking at the overall atrocious working conditions of the NFL's cheerleaders back in the fall. I mentioned it as my ARG. I wish I'd written that piece in episode 25, and I encourage you to check it out. This past week has brought a nationwide series of actions around the Trans-Pacific Partnership, and that, in case you don't know, is what is also deemed NAFTA on steroids. Um, it's a massive free trade deal that uh, will involve the U.S. and 11 uh, Pacific Rim nations. It's basically cut from the same cloth as NAFTA, a lot of pro-corporate provisions that touch on everything from environmental regulation to trade union rights to uh, various public health protections to public services. And it's basically designed along the same architecture as a lot of these international deals, which is to undermine both workers' rights as well as the rights of ordinary citizens uh, to control the way their resources are consumed and produced, and also to give outsized power to corporations that exceed national boundaries. And in many ways, this is also undermining national sovereignty itself. So there's a lot to hate about this deal. And um, Is there anything to like about it? Uh, well, it certainly <laughs> makes Obama look good because he can tout in the State of the Union that it will uh, bring jobs to the U.S., but but that's not actually true. Right. So disclaimer, not actually true. <laughs> not um, actually that was that had large scare quotes around it. Yeah. And interestingly enough, I mean, while, uh, you know, many environmental groups and other groups are coming out against uh, the TPP for various other reasons that deal with consumers and um, intellectual property rights, um, Harold Meyerson at the Washington Post outlined some of the implications for jobs, which labor unions are very concerned about. Um, he noted that according to one analysis, about 22 percent to 29 percent of all U.S. jobs are potentially at risk of being offshore to countries that can do it for less, meaning that they treat their workers worse. And so if we have that many U.S. jobs at stake, it's really no joke uh, when you have 11 other countries that are possibly going to be joining this free trade deal, many of which um, have much lower labor costs. Um, so, you know, the idea is that, as Harold Meyerson writes, such deals increase the incomes of Americans investing abroad, that is, the corporatocracy 
policy, even as they diminish the incomes of Americans working at home. They worsen the very inequality against which the president rightly campaigns. That means, you know, campaigning is different from what he actually does. Now the president is pushing for fast-track authority, which is another huge bone of contention because it undermines our own national sovereignty by undermining the power of Congress and giving the executive branch unilateral authority to negotiate this deal on his own without any oversight. So if you want to learn more about the TPP, um, you can go to, uh, well, you can just Google it, and uh, hopefully you can find a lot of Wikipedia leaks that um, are disclosing some of the internal secretly negotiated documents. Um, right, so transparency is not um, not the strong suit of these free trade deals. So um, keep an eye out, please. You're listening to Belabored, a Descent Magazine podcast. Links to articles mentioned in this episode may be found at descentmagazine.org. So if you've been paying attention to the news on education, you will have seen that there's a lot of action going on around education reform related to preschool education, the Common Core curriculum, standardized tests, charter schools. So in this smorgasbord of innovative, you know, sexy education reform ideas, you'll notice that certain names keep on coming up, namely the names of large uh, philanthropies, big names like the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation, and these other huge players that um, basically come out of corporate America and for some reason take a keen interest in education reform. So why are these plutocrats so interested in reforming the way our public schools work? Well, uh, Joanne Barkhan uh, wrote recently for Descent Magazine about what the plutocracy has to do with education reform and the insidious ways big philanthropy is reshaping the way public schools work and to some extent reshaping the way our democracy works. Um, it turns out that there's a long history of philanthropy and social reform being intertwined. And this is often based on rather insidious notions of how to so-called fix the poor. So here's Joanne and uh, we spoke with her via Skype about um, how all these things sort of fit together. So Joanne, I wound up reading your latest piece at Descent on the day that Pete Seeger died. Um, I mentioned this because the piece was about a profile of what you call the philanthro-ed reformers, and it was titled, They Shall Overcome. So your piece points out the way that this kind of top-down education reform really twists the theme of that classic protest song. Can you talk about why this kind of billionaire-driven educational reform is really antithetical to the ideal of the song we shall overcome. Okay. There's a group of very large, powerful philanthropies like the Gates Foundation that have um, declared reform of public education to be the civil rights issue of our era. And they have declared themselves the leaders of this movement. And they are responsible for the primary funding of the movement and they act in a completely top-down way. Um, they're interested in reforms like privately run but publicly funded charter schools or vouchers that let parents take public school funding that's paid for by taxpayers to religious schools and other private schools. And a lot of these closing down a lot of neighborhood schools um, and putting much more emphasis on testing, increasing the numbers of tests and making the test scores 
the key factor in deciding what teachers will be paid or what schools will stay open. These are very controversial reforms. And parents and students and teachers and citizens who are interested in the viability of public education oppose them. But the Philanthropies act in a top-down way, and they consider anyone who um, opposes what they want to do part of an opposition that they must defeat, that they must overcome. So it is a rather cruelly ironic situation where these self-declared civil rights leaders have put themselves in opposition to citizens, many of whom are minority and low income, and that the minority uh, opposition is actually now, from the point of view of the, of the philanthropists, on the wrong side of the civil rights issue. So it's both ironic and rather cruel and um, historically perverse. And speaking of history, in your previous article from the fall issue of Descent Magazine, Plutocrats at Work, How Big Philanthropy Undermines Democracy, you focused on the uh, role of philanthropy in the school for movement, but also talk about the history of American philanthropy and how it effectively linked these wealthy industrialists like Andrew Carnegie to certain social causes. And I was wondering, can you explain why it's important for us today to understand this longstanding tie between the corporate elite of America and these projects of social charity and how that should inform the way we view what's going on in public schools today. And I'm just wondering if you could draw the connection between that and the current education reform mm -hmm. debates. Well, these first mega philanthropies were founded in the early part of the 20th century, and they included Russell Sage and Carnegie and Rockefeller to begin with. And what was unusual about these philanthropies is, first of all, they were self-perpetuating. They were going to continue forever. They were much, much more wealthy than other philanthropies or other charities. And they didn't focus on single issues. They had a conception of improving the life of human beings globally. It was an immense uh, vision of social change in a positive direction and that they, the philanthropies, would help to lead that movement. So that sense of solving fundamental problems, social problems, and solving them using instruments of science and scientific research began in the early 20th century, and it has continued with what I call big philanthropy since then, so that there's, you know, a direct lineage between Carnegie and Rockefeller and the Gates Foundation and the Walton Foundation and the Broad Foundation and the others. So a big part of this education reform ideology is that unions are the problem, um, and we've seen some of the best opposition to this education reform come from strong teachers unions like the one in Chicago, now the union in Portland, Oregon, that just voted to authorize a strike this week. 
they're starting to stand up to this kind of reform. Can you talk about the vested interest that the ultra-wealthy have in having, helping to break one of the largest bastions of unionism in the country? I think that breaking the teachers' union and public sector unions in general is one motive of one part of um, the education reform movement. So I think it's important to emphasize that while the movement, this reform movement, is extremely strong and um, works as a rather united coalition, it's also heterogeneous. So if you consider the Walton Family Foundation, this is the money that comes from the Walmart uh, stores. The family members who run the foundation are extremely conservative and very free market oriented. Their ideal would be to have the government just fund privately run schools and vouchers is the first step toward that. So in that case, in the case of that foundation, there's a direct link between destroying the unions and privatizing the schools and the, philanthropy, uh, and the philanthropy. Some of the other philanthropies like Gates and um, Broad don't support vouchers, but they support the rest of the reform program. But I think that it's safe to say that all of the ed reformers and the big philanthropies that are involved in ed reform see the teachers union as the major obstruction to the kind of reforms that they, the philanthropists, want to um, want to implement. So you were just uh, talking about how this um, this movement is extremely strong and backed by a lot of money, but also has some diverse agendas. Um, and I was wondering, could you comment a little bit about? the use of publicity in marketing these different agendas, trying to brand them under this broad uh, tent of education reform. And, you know, if yesterday's philanthropists were um, interested in social reforms or, um, you know, programs for the poor, why do you think um, these sort of Silicon Valley type moguls like the Bill Gates and Facebook's Mark Zuckerberg, why are they gravitating towards schools as kind of the vehicle for pushing some of their more political, um, even ideological ideas about society? Well, historically, from the very beginning, big philanthropy was interested in education. So the public education of African-American children in the South was one of the main issues of the early bill, uh, big philanthropists. So education has always been an interest um, of these large private foundations. The difference is there's a new generation of philanthropists um, where the people who have made the money, like Eli Broad and Zuckerberg and Gates, and one generation removed, let's say, the children of Sam Walton, they are directly involved in shaping everything that their philanthropies do. It's no longer like Carnegie who set up a board and then he died and the foundation continued. These are what you might call, you know, the living big donors. And they run their foundations in a very different way. They run them 
as personal personal vehicles for social change. Yeah, I think a term that's been around a lot these days is social entrepreneurship. Um, sort of this idea of, you know, running philanthropy the way you would run a corporation and taking kind of a, you know, a hands-on entrepreneurial approach to experimenting with all these different types of social reforms. And um, I guess maybe things like charter schools offer a kind of an interesting petri dish for people to sort of play around with different ideas about how society could work? Is that, do you feel like that's part of what's going on here in terms of the social experimentation? Uh, yes, absolutely. I think that you can look at the influence of entrepreneurship or the personal experiences of entrepreneurship of these, you know, big philanthropists um, as shaping the way they think, first of all, about running their organizations and uh, instituting changes, which is completely top-down. It doesn't matter to them what the parents or the students or the educators think is best. They know best, um, and because it's their organization, they can impose what they want by holding out this, um, basically a bribe of money for school districts that are absolutely starving for funds. So the way they operate their foundations and the way they conceive of social change informs completely the way they operate. But that sense of entrepreneurship also informs what they think the content of the reform should be. So in general, they think that public education in the United States would be better if it were run like a business so that um, every school district would be like a, like a private investor and making investment in different schools and closing down the ones that didn't bring in enough yield on investment. And progress like that is always measured in terms of student scores on standardized tests. So entrepreneurship, and philanthrocapitalism informs everything that these uh, philanthrobarons are doing. I've been struck by how a lot of these same tech millionaires and billionaires are investors in companies like Sheryl Sandberg from Facebook is an investor in that company Rocketship that runs charter schools, that a lot of Bill Gates's proposed reforms involve bringing technology that then his company might make into the classrooms. Can you talk about the way these philanthropists are actually bringing money back around to themselves, too? Yes, that's um, a rather, well, it's not at all a strange phenomenon, except, of course, you would assume that these philanthrobarons, most of whom have separated themselves from active um, participation in their companies. They're one step removed from that, like Gates is now, uh, but they still might be very interested in recycling as much money as possible back to their own enterprises. Now, in a certain way, that seems perfectly logical that, you know, that's what they've done for their entire lives is to maximize profit and to look for market opportunities. Uh, I never really emphasized that in my thinking about it or my writing, but it's hard to ignore, especially 
with Gates, um, since Gates has funded so much, for example, of this idea of keeping data of students and teachers forever, massive data on everything a teacher and a student ever has done in terms of test scores and grading and all of that. So Gates uh, funded a company called In Bloom, and In Bloom is being their product, this you know, massive cloud of data is being sold at a state level all over the country. And most of the um, states have accepted it and bought into it. And so, of course, that kind of project feeds back into the sort of profit work that Gates had been doing. So there definitely is that link for the philanthrobarons. And then, of course, there are a lot of other um, ed reformists who are looking for a profit in all of this. For example, uh, the whole Common Core push, uh, which is the, the national, you would call it a national curriculum, although it's adopted on a state-by-state state basis. Um, and there are lots of criticisms of the curriculum, but the worst part of it is that it goes with a massive amount of tests and new tests. And companies like Pearson are very involved in uh, making profit over uh, selling those tests to school districts around the country. So this profit link is definitely is definitely there in many cases. Um, I would say that other aspects of the ed reform movement and the philanthropists involved um, is more ideological than profit-based so that you could say that the people who are involved in the Walton Family Foundation and their push for vouchers, I think that that's very much anti-union and pro-privatization and less involved in uh, profits that could be made. And just going back to the issue of... Um agendas that might be in the background that serve to empower corporate interests via education reform. Uh, you talked about how um, there's uh, sort of a, a fixation on using data and research to inform some of the policy recommendations that this movement makes. Um, everything from, you know, the research that goes into the Common Core curriculum to, you know, calculations of uh, what types of teaching methodologies work best or how to boost test scores or how schools should be measured. Um, can you talk about the role of data and this whole political debate and some of the limitations on data for, you know, on a day-to-day -day basis in terms of the actual education experience that schools and teachers and students go through. I mean, how, how is this all really helping anyone? The more numbers we crunch and the more data we amass on these students and teachers. I think the obsession, and it certainly is an obsession, with data collection is tied to the orientation of these philanthrobarons, which is that schools should be run like businesses. And from their point of view, um, you run a business, you have to collect data on sales and, you know, um, exactly who's performing and what quantitative degree in your company. And they bring that to school reform. So it's both their business orientation, 
but also um, that so many of these philanthro barons come out of the kind of Silicon Valley um, computer high-tech world. Uh, that as well informs how they think about public school. So for them, education is first and foremost preparation for the labor market. And you judge whether or not a student is being educated by how well that student does on standardized tests. That's the ultimate proof of learning for these people. So that brings about this tremendous emphasis on data collection, and it's carried farther beyond how the students are performing to using the students' test score data to evaluate teachers. And it becomes very number-oriented. So a good teacher is a teacher who raises each student's test score from September to June by X amount. And if the test score goes up, that teacher is a good teacher. If the test score is stagnant, that teacher is a mediocre teacher. If the test score goes down, then that is a bad teacher. And from my point of view, these philanthrobarons have absolutely no sense of what education is. They have no sense of how children learn. They have no sense of what the value of a public education is, which involves the development of citizenship and the development of fine human beings, um, as well as acquiring information. It involves learning how to think as well as learning how to do well on standardized tests. But they have absolutely no feel for this. I was just going to say that uh, from my reporting and Sarah's reporting, it seems really apparent that in their day-to-day -day educational experiences in these schools, um, teachers and students are um, kind of suffering under this really bone-crunching pressure to perform well on tests and all this drilling that they have to do. Uh, can you talk about some of the real-life consequences of this data obsession on what goes on every day in these classrooms. You know, how might a child's education be affected by this? Or, um, for example, how might a teacher um, feel about being uh, under the grip of this data obsession? It's done tremendous damage to public education across the country. There is so much more standardized testing now. I mean, grotesque amounts of standardized testing. And this means that there's less time to uh, devote to real learning and real education. And because the test scores are used to evaluate teachers, to evaluate principals, and to evaluate schools with very high stakes consequences, teachers losing their jobs and schools closing down, the principals and teachers are put in a position where they have to teach to the test to make sure that the test scores go up. So... It makes school very dull for the kids and very frustrating. It makes teaching uncreative and boring and stressful for the teachers. And it makes the running of a school much less 
creative and much less organic for principals. So it really undermines the quality of public education. And it's the kind of thing that the philanthro barons would never send their kids to the schools they are creating for low income and minority children. And this is one of the fundamental contradictions and also horrors of this whole ed reform movement. In that article in which you talk about the impact of big philanthropy and education reform, you also talk more generally about the impact of the plutocratic sector on democracy and on civil society. And, you know, obviously the schools are a very sensitive area when we're discussing how the next generation of citizens are going to be developed. And I was wondering if you could reflect a little bit about that issue of, um, you know, the plutocratic sector being privately governed and yet publicly subsidized. What does it mean when so much of the public trust is landing in the hands of um, private, extremely wealthy, powerful business interests? Um, How does that shape the way schools are governed and and how policy is made? Well, from my point of view, these mega foundations have become much too powerful in setting public policy. One of the reasons this has happened is that the Obama administration is very closely tied to um, this world of, of plutocracy, I would say. I mean, plutocracy is the accumulation and the exercise of political power through acquired wealth. And the United States is increasingly a plutocracy. And this ed reform movement, which is funded and led by the owners, so to speak, of large foundations, is an example of that. It's an example of the kind of creeping plutocracy we have in the United States. It's particularly serious from my point of view because public education is so important for the solidity of a democracy. I don't believe that you can have a strong and healthy democracy without a strong and healthy public education system. And everything that big philanthropy is doing in this particular ed reform movement is undermining public education. I'm Can you hear me okay? Yeah. Okay. Um, You wrote a piece in the spring of 2012 called Hired Guns on AstroTurf, How to Buy and Sell School Reform, that looked at the way these really, really rich individuals, I'm thinking of uh, billionaire now X, thank you, New York Mayor Bloomberg, pouring money into small school board elections in California and Connecticut. Can you talk about this phenomenon a bit and why it's so scary to see so much money being thrown at these small, low turnout elections? Yes. No one was paying any attention to school board elections except for teachers and teachers unions and um, the Christian right starting in the 1980s. But the um, philanthropists realized that they could push through their ed reforms quickly and fairly easily if everyone sitting on an elected school board at the state level or the district level 
was on the Ed Reform side. So they became extremely politicized and putting in, I'm not exaggerating, millions of dollars into local school board races. Now here it's really important to make a distinction. This is not legal for private foundations to do. And so all of the money that the philanthro barons are putting into ballot initiatives and into um, candidate campaigns comes out of their personal funds, not out of the private foundation coffers. That's an important legal distinction. Politically and practically, it makes no difference whatsoever. When Michael Bloomberg donated $330,000 for particular candidates in the Louisiana school board races, that was his own money taken out of that pot. (laughs) But... It could just as easily, it's all the same money. Some of it is in his, you know, his personal bank account, and some of it is in the foundation's bank account. But he's able to just pick the money from the right bank account where it will be legal. So essentially, these philanthrop barons are able to also pour money into elections, and it really has an enormous effect. If it used to be that you could run for school board and all you needed were some lawn signs and some volunteers and the registration fee, you now have to be able to raise hundreds of thousands of dollars for a position on a local school board. Um, Denver is one example. Those school board races in that city have become extremely expensive and financed by outsiders, you know, people completely across the country who are interested in having the ed reforms pushed through by that school board. So to wrap things up, um, you, as you just said, the United States is getting increasingly plutocratic. This is not, and education is not the only area that's totally dominated by rich people's dollars. Um, what is your what are some solutions for changing this power dynamic? I think that there are two fundamental solutions or you might say goals. People who are interested in preserving American democracy have to look at these two things. The first is campaign finance reform. With this increasing unequal distribution of wealth in the United States, The wealthy just have too much political power because we have privately financed campaigns. So we have to move in the direction of radical campaign finance reform. Um, Ultimately, it would be good if campaigns were short, serious, and publicly financed. In a way, nothing good happens until that changes. The second thing is very steeply progressive income taxes. We have to begin to use the income tax system again 
to equalize and redistribute uh, redistribute wealth. Now, um, another word has to be said about this, that wealthy individuals can spend their money in any way that's legal. And so radical campaign finance at least gets their money out of the political system in that way. And the tax reform does redistribution, but ultimately there will be wealthy people and um, they will be able to do what they want with their money, including uh, setting up private foundations to carry out their pet projects. But the system is completely out of control now. And the basic reforms are necessary just to preserve democracy. That was Joanne Barkin. We will put a link to her writing on the education reform movement at the Descent website. And as you all know, all you longtime 40-week listeners, this is your favorite part of the podcast. This is where we say, arg. I wish I'd written that. And this week, I'm getting meta in my arguing with a piece called Why Are So Many Journalists Willing to Write for Free? Um, Kathleen Kuhn at the Canadian Journalism Project looks at the way hope labor has replaced stable work, how we're now expected to perform the job for free for a while in order to get paid down the road to do the job. Um, she notes that journalists often blame bloggers and so-called citizen journalists for driving down the wages in our field rather than acknowledging changes in the global economy that have hit our profession as they have, you know, so many others. But hope is a good thing, right? Well, sort of, except when it ends up serving as a replacement for de decent conditions in the present. As Kuhn writes, we lack agency, so we hope. She points out the ways in which the media are complicit, not only in build, being built on lots of unpaid labor by those who hope for jobs in the future, but in propagating the myth of possible success, inspiring more and more people to struggle in the hopes of being the lucky one, rather than examining the problems with the commercial model of funding news reporting. I may be personally invested in the idea of unpaid labor in journalism. People still ask me to work for free all the time. Uh, but I see hope labor everywhere, from the college athletes I talked about last week to artists who have nearly always worked this way, to unpaid interns in a variety of different fields, to even the ambitious young things putting in 80-hour weeks on Wall Street, as uh, belabored executive producer Sarah Leonard wrote about this week for Book Forum. Yeah. And I think it's also important to note that the flip side of hope is that it's essentially a euphemism for speculation, right? It's all part of this speculative global economy that uh, banks on the future, often at the expense of the present. Yes. So um, speaking of the present, um, <laughs> we have um, – that's my segue. Yeah. So uh, we actually have a very interesting article here that is my ARG. It was in the New York Times opinion section. It is by Richard Wilkinson and Kate Pickett. And it's called How Inequality Hollows Out the Soul. In it, uh, Wilkinson and Pickett take a rather grim view of the way inequality hurts not just the people at the bottom, but everyone essentially tears apart the social fabric. They actually cite data on how, you know, essentially income inequality and all sorts of inequality and privilege of a few is essentially a marker of the decline of, of society. And he notes that Quote, one of the less well-known costs of inequality is that people withdraw from community life and are less likely to feel that they can trust others. 
And he attributes this to uh, status anxiety. And this is something that makes us all more worried about how we are valued by others. Now, we can compare the robust data for different countries, and we see um, not only what we knew intuitively, that inequality is divisive and socially corrosive, but that it also damages the individual psyche. Uh, therefore, the United States has far higher rates of mental health issues, such as depression, anxiety, etc., cetera, uh, compared to other more equal societies. Um, and, you know, although mental health problems definitely do impact the poor especially, it, there's something to be said for the fact that constant status anxiety about protecting what you have, a constant fear of falling down the income ladder, even if you are slightly higher up, um, is definitely feeding into this social malaise and will often impact individuals' mental health as well. Um, and you might say that this is caused by the constant tortured feelings of guilt and shame that one has, though that might be giving the rich a little too much credit for how compassionate they are, and they <laughs> may not feel guilt at all. Um, you know, see Wolf of Wall Street, etc. But um, it does show that um, empirical evidence uh, does indicate that wealthier people are, in fact, objectively meaner. They have um, studies <laughs> showing that rich people are more likely than non-rich people to uh, literally take candy from children. Um, I remember that study. Yes. That was amazing. Yes, yes. Um, so that was a controlled experiment, people. It was um, so That actually happened. Yes. Um, and so, you know, all these studies basically just tell us what we already know, right? That, uh, that inequality is bad. But when you map out how exactly it affects all sectors of society, um, it shows you that everyone really has a stake in reducing inequality. And, and the fact is that it's often the people who are not at the very, very tip top, the most genteel of us, um, who have the most of this anxiety because they know exactly how little it takes for their income status to fall, how incredibly arbitrary this whole class privilege thing is. So um, the reason this inspired an ARG for me is because um, I think that it is essentially um, very acutely um, a, a system that really erodes the American social fabric because we pride ourselves on being a so-called meritocracy, saying that hard work will pay off. And of course, we are the most unequal it's also worth noting that inequality has risen in this country as one particular sort of social institution that helped keep inequality down has faded. I'm talking, of course, about labor unions, as we do every week on Descent Magazine's Belabored Podcast. You like that segue? Hmm. That was a great segue. Um, this has been episode 40. We hope you have enjoyed all 40 episodes. If not, we encourage you to take a look through our back episodes on the Descent Magazine website. Send us your suggestions for stories, ideas, thoughts, comments, your personal labor struggles at the hashtag belabored on Twitter or at belabored at descentmagazine.org. And as always, we'll see you next week. Over and out. This life is hard, so hard I must go. Eight twin to five, we can't go. You've been listening to Descent Magazine's Belabored Podcast, produced by Natasha Lewis. For the entire archive of past episodes, visit descentmagazine.org. Until next week, join us online using hashtag belabored.